Our uh, text for this morning's message is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. As we continue in our sub-series, Why I Am a Theonomist, which in some respects, I guess, is chronically, chronicling my uh, journey through this particular issue. And, in hopes that at least at some level you'd understand why I've drawn the conclusions that I have drawn. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, hear now the word of God. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law? which I set before you this day. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we look at your law, that we would come to understand your character and your nature. Father, as we look at your law, may we, even as we recited this morning, seek to walk in it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, recognizing it being your prescription for love. As we seek, Father, to walk in your law, may it ever remind us how desperately we need Jesus, for he was the only one who always did that which was pleasing in your sight. He was the law keeper. Help us, Father, to understand rightly your divine statutes, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dead Man Walking was a movie that came out in 1995, seeking to address the issue of the death penalty. It was directed by Tim Robbins, and it starred Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn, celebrities who are generally somewhat anti-Christian in their sentiments. It sought to evenly-handedly address the positives and the negatives of public execution. Sean Penn played a murderer. They didn't try to downplay his guilt, but rather demonstrate the heinous nature of the brutal crime he committed. I mean, it wasn't like they were trying to make him look innocent. Robbins, the director, no doubt wanted the audience at some level to feel that this man was getting just what he deserved. He wanted to portray this as an awful crime that the man was definitely guilty of. Sarandon played a nun who opposed the death penalty. The movie was well made and it was clever, but it never addressed the real issue. There is a general disposition that proponents of the death penalty are seeking to cater to the anger of the victim or the victim's loved ones. And the most efficient method to assuage that anger is the desire for revenge by seeing the perpetrator put to death. That's the way that it is generally portrayed. It is this tension which generally takes center stage in the debate. 
do we opt the humane and more progressive road of removing the death penalty from the table of political policy, or do we take the lower moral ground by furnishing the victims with the gratification of seeing the assailant exterminated? That's the way it's generally portrayed, that there is this better way, but we need to cater to these hurt people, so let's go ahead and cater to their desire for revenge. The movie was clever because it self-consciously avoided any discussion of justice. The means by which it avoids this discussion descends from clever to cunning by the use of a nun, the person who would presumably understand biblical wisdom and justice. Scripture's impotence to sufficiently address the issue is brought to the fore in the scene where the nun, upon entering the prison for a visitation, engages the guards who are casted as kind of church-going hicks. And there's a brief dialogue, and it goes like this. As the nun walks into the prison, the guard says, Tell me something, sister. What is a nun doing in a place like this? Shouldn't you be teaching the children? And do you know what this man has done, how he killed them kids? The nun answers, What he did was, e what he did was evil. I don't condone it. What's the sense in killing to say killing is wrong? The guard responds by quoting the scriptures. You know how the Bible says, an eye for an eye. The nun responds to the guard's use of scripture with, quote, know what else it asks for? Death penalty for adultery. And in this particular scene, you get the idea that he's trying to portray the nuns kind of as Jesus in John chapter 8, where the woman in adultery is caught. And he says, he who is without stone, cast the first stone. The idea is that all the guards are pretty much guilty. What else does it call for? Death penalty for adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, trespass upon sacred ground, profaning the Sabbath, and contempt of parents. The nun answers. The guard, no doubt speaking for the entire audience, on the utter insignificance of the Bible when it comes to the issue, throws up the white flag saying, I ain't going to get no Bible quoting with no nun because I'm going to lose. Now, that's the end of that scene. So, you see, the nun has accused the simpleton guards of a logical fallacy known as argumentum ad veracundium, which means appeal to unqualified authority. And the unqualified authority, which must be dismissed, is the Bible. See, the guard brought the Bible into the discussion. And the nun dismissed the Bible as, a, as an authoritative, authoritative, credible source whereby which this issue can be discussed. Notice she doesn't make the argument that the Bible does not teach the death penalty, she eliminates the Bible from being relevant to the discussion. Another logical fallacy employed might be what they call the poisoning of the wells. If the well is poisoned, no water drawn from it can be used. And again, the poisoned well are the scriptures. It's clever. It's cunning. Sadly, this is to be expected from anti-Christian humanist-driven media. But even more sadly is the church's inability to answer this fictional nun's objection. How would you respond to her disqualification of the Bible? 
in the whole movie, that's where the Bible is addressed. And within a minute, it's disqualified from the dialogue based upon its lack of ability. And I think it's interesting to point out that uh, argumentum ad verincundium in terms of the appeal to unqualified authority, that the unqualified authority usually has to do with, one, a lack of expertise, two, bias or prejudice, three, a motive to lie, or four, the lack of ability to perceive or recall, like you can't remember. All pretty strong indictments against the sufficiency and the trustworthiness of God's word. And this is all coming from the religious person in the movie. It's the nun who removes the Bible from the dialogue. Perhaps you recall my mentioning the subject to a young Christian lawyer who indicated that if he were to serve in Washington, he would never propose to his fellow legislators that we follow the Old Testament civil codes. He said they would laugh him off the floor. He believed there was some other standard more suited to the functioning of government than the standard given by Moses in the law. The friends David proclaimed in Psalm 119.46, I will speak of thy testimonies before kings and not be put to shame. To what kings would David speak these testimonies? David was the king. He was the king of Israel. Could not the answer be to any king? By quick review... Let me just bring us up to speed. And I know last week I spent a lot of time with the review, so it'll be quicker today. We are seeking to obey Jesus' command in the Great Commission to obey all that he has commanded. The commands of God being his prescription for true love. Even as Mike read this morning in the responsive reading, what is the greatest command? And the answer is to love. Jesus understood that love meant obeying the commands of God. That's the way we express love. Friends, we have... And we will continue to address the danger of using God's law in an unlawful manner as a means by which we seek to approve ourselves before God. It is my prayer that nobody walks away from these meetings saying, Pastor Paul is saying, because he's talking all about the law, and he's saying that we need to keep the law well enough to be saved. May genetai, the Apostle Paul would say, may it never be. Maybe some of your versions would say, God forbid that that be our position on this. Friends, we're not saved by our ability to keep God's law. One of the beauties, by the way, of God's law is how it teaches just the opposite. And when we talk about the law, it could be, by the way, the whole Old Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote that he, through the law, died to the law that he might live unto God. Galatians 2.19. That he, through the law, died to the law that he might live unto God. Friends, should we not follow Paul's example and keep the law ever before us? delighting in it as the Apostle Paul did, delighting in it as David did, that it might ever remind us of the one who delivers us from, quote, this body of death, Jesus Christ, our Lord, Romans 7, 24 and 25. It's the law of God that ever reminds us of our body of death. But the question before us is, what is the standard by which we, who are saved by grace, live? What is the standard by which we live? And more specifically, and this is our sub-series on theonomy, is there a compartment of men's affairs to which the law of God recorded in Scripture is not given access, specifically government? Does the law of God belong in my personal quiet times and maybe the way that I would function in terms of my love for one another and my love for God, but the law of God is simply not allowed to function 
in the arena of government. Friends, is the nun correct in disqualifying the Bible from the discussion? We discussed the means by which the New Testament interacts with the Old Testament, how the New Testament writers continually appeal to the Old Testament regarding instruction on both law and gospel. The New Testament writers utilize the Old Testament in its full complement, not just to address redemption, but also to address sanctification, to address how we ought to live. We also discussed the continuity, the issue of continuity and discontinuity. That is, unless God repeals or modifies his law in the New Testament, we should view the law to continue as binding on the human conscience. God does not have to repeat himself. Unless God has removed that law, unless God has modified that law, unless God has abrogated that law, that law should still be viewed as binding on the human conscience. And we also discussed that God did not nullify or modify laws for no reason, as if he just changed his mood someday. The nullified or modified laws were due to a couple of purposes. One, their, their purpose in general, which was the ceremonial laws, which were a shadow of the good things to come. Hebrews 10.1. We don't have those laws anymore because the good thing came who was Christ. So those particular ceremonial Levitical laws that were designed to tell me about Jesus were no longer necessary because Jesus has come. I no longer need a map telling me where to drive once I've arrived. And two, the separation laws, which were to be used to distinguish Israel from other nations. And uh, and with that, the tribal or land laws are nullified since the new covenant is an international entity. So you understand that there were certain laws that God abrogated. He really modified. He didn't change really his disposition. But he changed them because there were certain laws in the Old Testament that were telling us about what Jesus would be like. But when Jesus came, we no longer needed those laws that were teaching us about what Jesus would be like. For we have the full expression. We don't need to look at the shadow anymore. We have the substance. And then there were certain laws that were unique to Israel because Israel as a unique nation was to be separated from other nations. And so when, when the, the new covenant that you and I are part of became every nation, kindred, and tongue, when Jesus said, go into all nations, not just Israel, all men, those types of distinctions were no longer necessary. The way we dress, the kinds of food we eat, and what have you, don't distinguish us now from other nations. So you understand that there were reasons. God just didn't change laws because he wasn't in the mood anymore. They had a specific purpose. The civil codes of Moses, those laws that were to be considered crimes, friends, were not a shadow of the good things to come. That that kidnappers should be prosecuted by the civil magistrate tells me nothing about the atoning work of Christ on the cross. That kidnappers should be prosecuted is not a shadow of anything. There may be some very indirect way in which we may see this, but... They are so indirect that to employ this methodology would functionally remove all the commands of Scripture. That, that, that murderers should be put to death, that kidnappers should be prosecuted, and so on. It tells me nothing about the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So we're going to get to whether or not these things were unique to Israel this morning. Now, some questions that I'm not going to ask this morning, but we're going to get to in the weeks to come are, that, are these. Why is the New Testament silent on civil issues, or is it? Is this understanding of the civil law harsh 
Is God's law harsh or is it compassionate? What do the secondary standards of our church have to say about this issue? Our statement of faith, if you will. The Westminster Confession, our catechism, and what have you. What does that have to say? Is this just me kind of making stuff up? In a society which would view many of God's laws as extreme and ridiculous, how are we to reasonably apply this theonomic concept? Once at the end of this, you're going to go, well, okay, Pastor Paul, so what? What does this mean to me? And we'll get to these in the future. But this morning, I'm only going to ask a couple of questions and hopefully answer them. One, to what extent the Christian is to promote justice? Is that a big deal for us? Are we called to promote justice? Two, what is the standard for that justice? And three, and this is the big question really for this morning that we'll finish on, should we understand the civil laws of God given through Moses to be unique to Israel or should we view them as with the moral law as transcendent, that is above everyone and universally binding on all humanity? In other words, do they apply to everyone? Now, some of you, there are still a lot of people here, and I'm glad that you're all still showing up. Someday, if you go down this road, you're going to have to answer these questions. You might go, well, Pastor Paul, you're making an argument. You're giving answers to an argument that I've never been in. Well, you better get in one of those. Be nice. But at very least, you need to be able to answer Susan Sarandon. At the very least, you'd want to be with everybody else in that theater going, yeah. Because let me tell you, I know I quote movies a lot, and you're like, oh, Pastor Paul, you and your movies. But I, heard, I was watching a documentary, which wasn't a movie. It was a documentary on JFK, the movie JFK. And a comment was made that I thought was very telling. And the comment was, I have no doubt that in the future, the movie makers are going to be the ones who will be the historical revisionists. More people know about John Kennedy through Oliver Stone than through Warren, the Warren Report or through any other uh, media that we have today. Well, of course, that movie's, you know, whatever it is now, 15 years old. But nonetheless, that's where people, you better be able to answer those questions because, and I mentioned some logical fallacies. The logical fallacies are monumental. But we don't, we live in a culture that doesn't care about logical fallacies because we live in what you call a postmodern era. And in a postmodern era, propositions don't mean anything. Statements don't mean anything. It's all affect. It's all emotion. It's all going to a movie. And how does that movie make you feel? And can he get the lighting right? And can he get the music right? Because if they can get you to feel a certain way, logic doesn't matter. Let me tell you something. If logic doesn't matter, the statement that Jesus made, I am the truth, means nothing. Because you can't know truth apart from logic. Interestingly enough, in John, in the first chapter, where he says, uh, in the beginning was the word. The word there is logos, which, by the way, can be extended to the word logic. Now, it extends to a lot of other words as well. But we need to understand, uh, you know, there was a lady in our church teaching the kids a logic class. And we were out at lunch with another pastor. And he looked at her with, like, incredulity. Like, why in the world do you teach a logic class? Like, it didn't make sense. I understand that. I can understand that question. Because we tend to look at it in a completely different spectrum. But, friends, if you don't understand logic, you can't know truth. I mean, I can't overemphasize that. All right, number one promoting justice. Is it really the Christian's role to promote justice? I think we need to recognize the general call that the Christian has to promote justice. The following are just two of many passages which tell the Christian not only to walk justly, but to promote justice. These will be verses that you might be pretty familiar with in the Old Testament. Micah 6, 8, 
He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God? To do justly. The other one is Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. There's a call that we have as the followers of the true God to promote that which is just. The Hebrew word for justly or justice is worth pointing out because it carries, friends, a very civil connotation. It means, quote, decision by arbitration, legal decision, legal case. What is in conformity to a case? It's Perry Mason. Matlock, for those of you who are younger. (laughs) It's the idea of a courtroom. There's a case. We want justice. It means to make a judgment that is act deciding a legal dispute or case. We are to promote justice. People often take the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in such a way as to eradicate any sense of justice ever being employed. Maybe you've heard this. This is one of the favorite verses that people who think that Christians said it should have nothing to do with politics use. It's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 38 and 39. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. You've heard that, right? This is often read as if Jesus is speaking contrary to Moses, who he quotes here from Exodus 21:24. But friends, is this addressing the civil magistrate? Is Jesus addressing the civil magistrate? Is Jesus telling the lawmaker not to resist an evil person? Is that what Jesus is saying? Because if that's the case, the critics of the Bible have found a clear contradiction since the Apostle Paul writes that the civil rulers are appointed by God to be a terror to evildoers. Well, did Paul disagree with Jesus? There you have it, a contradiction right within the pages of Scripture. Friends, no. Jesus is speaking of personal vindictiveness, not civil justice. Matter of fact, you know, it's been pointed out that he said uh, your right cheek, which has the idea that if you're going to hit somebody on the right cheek, most people are right handed. It would be the back of your hand hitting them on the right cheek, which would be kind of effacing your integrity. But the point of all of this really is that Jesus is saying you're taking the civil law and you're using it for personal vindictiveness. And that's not what you're supposed to do. You as an individual, as a Christian, are to turn the other cheek. Let me going to push this a little bit further in just a second. I am not to take vengeance into my own hands, what Jesus teaches here. Now, it's worth noting the reasoning Paul gives regarding the exact same sentiment when he admonishes Christians to bless those who persecute you, to not repay evil for evil. See, the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing Jesus is saying. Do not resist an evil person. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good unto evil. Do not retaliate, the Apostle Paul says. And what is the basis the Apostle Paul gives for this? The basis Paul gives for Christians to cease from avenging themselves is that God has ordained governing authorities as his, quote, ministers and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. See, when Paul says, look, don't, don't 
return evil for evil. God has somebody to take care of that. The civil magistrate. You understand that Paul's point here? Paul's point is, you know what? You don't retaliate. God has ordained authorities, Romans 12, 13, who will take care of the evil person. You, you need to visit them in prison. You need to extend love to them. You need to visit them on death row. You need to pray for them. And if they ask for forgiveness, you need to forgive them. But that in no way alleviates the responsibility of the civil magistrate to execute justice. The civil magistrate is to be a terror to evil. Even though we as individuals, Jesus says, are not to resist evil in that respect. Friends, this should not be thought of as an excuse for vindictiveness or taking the law into our own hands. But when the civil law does not exercise justice, it tempts its citizens to do just that. I mean, I just wrote a column about this a couple of months ago. You know, the abortion doctor who was executed. He wasn't executed. He was shot. And I, again, I don't think that we should go around taking law in our own hands, shooting abortion doctors. I, I'm not advocating that. But what I am saying is when you live in a society and, when, you know, I know people, we could argue about that in Q&A if you want. But that's not my point here. My point is this, that when you have a society where the civil magistrates allow innocent children to be killed, they are tempting the citizens to load up. And I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm just saying we need to examine that within ourselves. I mean, you think about it yourself, how you feel sometimes because we have border laws that are ignored. How's that making you feel regarding people from other countries who come in here who are illegal? That makes it a little harder, I think, personally. It makes people kind of a little bit resentful. You know what? You can't cater to that feeling. You can't cater to that emotion. But when we have a, a, a country, when we have civil codes that are being ignored, then they're tempting the people to not like each other. I think it goes on and on. It goes on and on with the many languages we have in our culture that you can't talk to people. And it gets frustrating. And it can become dangerous. You know, you come to a scene of an accident and you say, somebody dial 911. Somebody, you know, call the fire department. And nobody knows what you're talking about. Lives are at stake. Frustration enters in. There are these types of things that our civil magistrate is called to address that if they don't address then you're tempting the people. And let me just, I'm, you might be, I'm not, in, and again, I'm not in any way trying to advocate that. What I'm saying is you need to overcome it. It's not okay because the civil magistrate has abdicated his duty for you to therefore not be loving. You understand my point here? My point isn't, oh yeah, Pastor Paul is justifying my bad behavior toward my neighbor. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is just like marriages, you know, where people are justifying their bad behavior in the marriage based upon their spouse's behavior. You know what I'm saying? You know what? I'm going to agree with you that your spouse behaved poorly, but that never justifies your behavior. Because we're to do our good work as unto God. Right? My love for my wife isn't, quite frankly, based upon her love for me. My love for my wife is based upon God's love for me. So regardless of how well she's behaving, I'm called to love her nonetheless. Not that she ever behaves improperly. Eye for eye, interestingly enough, is viewed as harsh in a culture. I mean, people bring that up. Like, oh, you guys are eye for eye. You ever hear that? And it's like so harsh. 
Eye for eye is viewed as harsh in a culture where people get away with theft and murder on a regular basis. But in lands where hands are chopped off for stealing a piece of fruit, guess what? Eye for eye is preferred. Let me just tell you something to clear this up and just quick quickly. Eye for eye is neither harsh nor lenient. Eye for eye is just. That's why it's eye for eye. It's not eye for tooth. It's not eye for head. It's eye for eye. Eye for eye is just. Secondly, where does one find that standard for true justice? If we are as Christians called to promote justice, where do we find the standard for true justice? As Christians, we of all people ought to recognize the provision of God's word as a sufficient source of wisdom to thoroughly equip. The nun is wrong. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped for every good work means God, through his word, has revealed everything we need to know, either directly or by implication. It's all there. Directly or by implication. For example, Scripture may not give the civil courts specific rules on how long a chain you should put on your dog. But they do inform the civil magistrate of their responsibility to create a safe environment when it comes to things that might be dangerous or a public nuisance. And I gave an example here, Exodus 21, 28 through 32, of a goring bull. There's an example there of a a bull that gores, and there's a bull that tends to gore. In other words, you know the bull gores. You need to do something about it. And if you don't do something about it, then there's going to be a civil punishment and so on. So it does give either explicitly or by extension all the things we need to know in order to function not only as, as individuals, but as a society. It's all there. Friends, it is in the context, by the way, of the law of God that we are warned not to add nor to take from the word of God. That's in Deuteronomy 4, too. Paul also warns us not to think beyond what is written, that none of us might be puffed up. Interesting, he wrote that to the church at Corinth. Where was Corinth? It was in Greece. What was Greece full of? Don't say Grecians. <laughs> Philosophers, sophists, thinkers. You know, that's where all the smart people were. But the Apostle Paul is continually addressing how puffed up they are. And he's going, look at You think you're so smart, but it's not your smarts that's going to get you to God. Through the wisdom of man, God is never found, but it is through God himself, the power of God and the word of God. So, friends, the short answer to the question, the second question, you know, where is wisdom or where does true justice be found is the word of God. But, of course, this does not entirely address the issue. Is God's civil law to be considered universal or is it unique to Israel? That's, again... You may not even view that as a question, but that's a big question in this discussion. Was that law given that God gave to Moses, was it just for Israel or was it for everybody? Friends, if it was unique to Israel, we in the new covenant would either be excluded from the boundaries of that law because we're not Israel. Or if we are the Israel of God, we should understand that it is binding on us, but not on the world by which we're surrounded. That's our conclusion. If it's just for Israel, my point is, then it doesn't apply to us at all because Israel is over in terms of God's covenant people. Another discussion altogether. Or it applies to us as the Israel of God, which is the way we're referred to by the Apostle Paul. But it doesn't apply to those outside of the church. It only applies to people within the church. 
that's our final uh, point this morning. We are going to ask if God's standards given in Scripture should be viewed as authoritative over all the earth. Or are these laws restricted just to Israel? You understand the question? It could be asked this way. When it comes to law, is Jehovah a tribal deity or is he God over all the earth? When it comes to law, is Jehovah a tribal deity? His law is just over Israel. Or is he, in terms of his law, God over all the earth? In a few short minutes, I'm going to seek to make an argument that I think should be obvious. I feel like I shouldn't even have to make this argument. Now, I'm not questioning the motives of those theologians and sincere Christians who disagree. I recognize that loving, sincere Christians disagree. I have to say, nonetheless, that the theological efforts made to restrict God's commands to Israel are either way over my head or simply creative beyond my comfort zone. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, you can get really creative with, you know, with the old saying, right? You torture a verse long enough, you can get it to confess to anything. And that's the way kind of I feel sometimes. I'm going, wow, that's a really creative way to look at that. But I just don't, it's certainly not the natural reading of the text. The short and the long of it amounts to this, friends. Right and wrong are not geographically defined. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this. We understand a thing called mitigating circumstances. Mitigating means lessen the severity of the crime or to lessen the punishment. It's a kind of a, it makes it smaller. We understand mitigating circumstances. But mitigating circumstances, the idea that it's not as bad when it's done here versus here, isn't geographically defined, nor is it temporally defined. It's not defined in what area you happen to be living in, nor is it defined by uh, what area you happen to be living in. Matter of fact, we see mitigating circumstances found right in the Old Testament. I'll just give you one example. Proverbs 6.30, we read, People do not despise a thief. Isn't that an interesting way to start a verse? And I thought it was one of the violations of the Ten Commandments. Do not despise the thief if he steals to satisfy himself while he's starving. I mean, it's almost like, look, at, there's a mitigating circumstance to, to stealing here. I mean, I, I hasten to point out that that thief is to eventually pay back what he stole. Nonetheless, we see that the words of God tend to soften when it comes to the person who's starving or their family is starving and what have you. Mitigating circumstances, the death penalty for murder is mitigated even within the context of the Old Covenant. It's not just, you know, uh, uh, after the, the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Even within the boundaries of the Old Testament, we see mitigating circumstances. So I don't want to overly simplify this. But friends, what the point, my final point is that the law of God is universally binding. Crossing county lines, crossing country lines, does not make right wrong or wrong right. I mean, this should hardly need proving if we recognize the character and nature of God as the standard for all law. Like I said last week, it's not like God flipped a coin and said, I think I'm going to make murder wrong. Or he walked into some big library and said, I need some place to find ethics. Do you have the ethics section? No, the law of God is an extension of his own character. It's an extension of his own nature. So it's almost that for me, frankly, would be is the end of is all I need. Nonetheless, the Bible is not silent on this issue. Moses's laws were not simply for Israel. God was not a tribal deity. 
We do not acquiesce to political polytheism. We don't think that there are other gods making other laws for other people that are, that are actually legitimate. Friends, God is God over all the earth and his law is for all men. Let me get to the text we read this morning. Prior to Israel entering into the promised land, God informs them of how they will be viewed by the non-Israeli inhabitants. Now, let's take a look at that text again. Surely, I've, this is Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. Surely I've taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Okay, you know what's going on here, right? I mean, Moses is about to be out of the scene. Joshua is going to take the Israelites over the Jordan into this land and they're going to begin to conquer. And they're going to begin to conquer, if you read that, because the evil of those nations had reached its fullness. God was both delivering Israel and judging evil at the same time. I mean, that's the majesty of God's sovereignty. He worked this out just perfectly. The land that they're going to go to possess. Verse 6. Therefore, be careful to observe them, them being the laws. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people who will hear all these statutes and say, quote, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Friends, those outside of God's covenant will view the laws of God observed by God's people. And what are they going to say? Surely this, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, we recognize they all didn't say that. They all should have said that. The Israel's going to come in and they're going to see the laws of Israel and they're going to go, surely these are a wise and understanding people. And the reasoning is explained by the rhetorical question, what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law? Note, friends, all this law, not some of this law, as are in all this law. People are happy to assign this typologically to the church, going, well, it's the people outside the church looking into the church going, wow, those people in the church, they really you know, understand wisdom and justice and what have you. And in some respects, I don't doubt there's some accuracy to that. They're going to go, well, Israel is kind of like the church. And it's like people looking, like in Acts, you know, looking at the church meeting and they're going, wow, these people are godly people. They're wise people. They're just people. I understand that and I don't disagree with that. But friends, given the civil nature of Israel, that Israel was a nation, a nation with just civil codes. Why in the world would we eliminate that from the equation? Why would we say that cannot ever be looked at in terms of the way a nation would function, that that people would look at a nation and go, wow, these are wise and understanding people. Look at their laws. They have wonderful laws. They have just laws. Couldn't these wonderful words be said of any nation, any nation governing in a wise and godly fashion? Friends, those Christians who reject theonomy will often answer that they, given the opportunity to rule, would seek to rule with wisdom. I go ask them, I go, well, you don't believe in theonomy? You don't believe God's civil codes given through Moses should be the law? Well, no. Well, then how, if if you were made king, how would you rule? With wisdom. Kind of this blanket Wisdom, with love and with wisdom. I appreciate that answer. But God says we ought to, quote, be careful to observe them, his laws, 
for this is your wisdom. I hesitate to go over patriotic on you. I I do think this is the greatest nation. I got a little heat for this in Studio City when I was at a little coffee shop and got in a little nice discussion with somebody and I had mentioned how great I thought America was and they got all anti, oh, we got to quit patting ourselves on the back and what have you. Uh, Rethink you. I got to recalibrate here. And I, so I, I hesitate to get over patriotic, recognizing the vicissitudes of human government, recognizing that this may apply to us, may have applied to us, but it's in applying to us less and less as time goes on. You understand my point here? But wasn't there a time when the blatant Christian convictions of American government made this country a marvel to the world? When was there a time? I mean, am I, what, did I read those books wrong? Because I don't think I read those books wrong. Wasn't everybody sending people here going, what in the world's going on here? De Tocqueville? Did I read De Tocqueville wrong? I mean, some people say, he didn't really say that. He was a a French political analyst, I guess. And he came here and he said, America is great because America is good. This is 1800s. And when America ceases to be good, it'll cease to be great. And then he gave his argument. He goes, him that the pulpits are aflame with the law and the gospel of Christ. I mean, he was pointing out why America was great. Was not America great because America was just? Was everybody coming here because we just happened to have good oranges or something? I don't think so. We see that the godly statutes of Israel were to be a light and a blessing, as it were, to those nations outside Israel. But does that mean that those nations were not obligated to God's law prior to this? That might be your question. I'm anticipating those of you who are going, well, wait a minute, Pastor Paul. If they're going to see Israel's law and go, wow, these are great laws... Should I not then assume that those laws didn't apply to him until Israel showed up? You understand my question? He's basically, you know, the, the argument is that they didn't have the laws yet. And when Israel showed up, then they saw the laws. And since they didn't see the laws until Israel showed up, they were un, therefore under no obligation to keep them. They just didn't know. Again, observe the instructions of God regarding entering Canaan. Having given detailed commands, God, I can't read all of this because I'm already going long, but having already given detailed commands in terms of his laws, God then issues this warning. And this is an important passage. It's in Leviticus 18, 24 through 28. God says, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these, the nations are defiled which I am casting out before you, for the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquities upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of you of uh, of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations of men of the land have done who were there before you, and thus the land is defiled." lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it as it vomited out the nations that were before you, which, by the way, they did. Israel did not heed the words of God and they were vomited out. The neighboring nations, the non-Israeli nations, were vomited out of the land because they defiled themselves. Friends, how did they defile themselves? By either doing or not doing those things which God had just commanded. He says, for quote, for all these abominations. Now he said, what, what abominations? Well, the ones he just spoke of. 
For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you. You understand the point here? God gives all these laws. He's telling Israelites, don't do those things when you go into the land. Because the people who were there before you, they did do these things and they're vomited out. You keep in mind, vomited out. I know I keep saying it. It's all gross and everything. But it's the idea. It carries the idea of God's judgment. They were judged because they violated the commands that God just said. For these things, they have been vomited out of the land. Those outside the borders of Israel were judged, friends, because they broke God's law. Now, we haven't time to fully address it here. Some might ask, how could they be accountable for a law they never knew? I mean, somebody might ask that. It's not an unreasonable question. But either by oral transmission, you know, because we're all descendants of Noah, or by general revelation, Romans 1, 18 through 23, or by our being made in the image of God, knowing good and evil, uh, Genesis 3:22, or other theories, men know certain behaviors are worthy of death yet practice them nonetheless and, quote, also approve of those who practice them, Romans 1.32. They, they knew that those things were worthy of death, and yet they practiced them anyway, and they were judged by the law of God. Friends, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed way before Moses because of their sexual perversion. They were a Gentile people without a written revelation, destroyed for breaking the law of God. Nineveh was going to be destroyed if it wouldn't repent because it was breaking the law of God. The scriptures teach God will judge the nations. Psalm 9:19, Isaiah 2, 4, on and on and on and on. We read in Isaiah, the earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. Why? Because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances. Broken the everlasting covenant. Friends, the Gentiles were under the law of Moses just as much as the Jews. Is it? I'm going to ask this question. Is it genuine love and forbearance to approach our neighbor, culture, our nation with anything less than a statute which God says will be viewed as wise and understanding? Is it right for us to do that? Is it loving for us to do that? To approach our neighbor, to approach our culture, to approach our nation with any law or any statute that is anything less than that which God says, this is wise and understanding. Is that love? Are we going to go and say, look at, we're going to give you something less than the wisdom of God. Should we hesitate because of the mockers and the scoffers? Should we hesitate because we're afraid to be laughed at? Or should we, like David, speak the testimonies of God before kings and not be put to shame? Now, in the weeks to come, we're going to seek to answer other questions such as, why does the New Testament not even talk about this stuff? Or does it talk about it? We're going to ask, is this understanding of the civil law harsh or compassionate? If you look at that civil law, you might look at it and go, Pastor Paul, you've got to be kidding me. And I have something to say to you who say that. What, what does our confession teach about that? Or am I kind of just going off on my own tangent here? And, and in a society which would view many of God's laws as extreme and just ridiculous, how are we to reasonably apply this concept, this theonomic concept in real life? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to be wise and understanding. And Father, if we view our wisdom or our understanding as anything, as anything antithetical to your word, 
Help us to repent and help us to recognize that thy word is truth. May we, Father, in all love and humility proclaim that which is good and right and true. We pray, Father, that our lips would be a blessing to you and a blessing to all with whom we come into contact with. We pray, Father, that we would understand wonderful things, especially at a time where wisdom is so desperately needed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.